on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crab Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a closet full of guns and a freezer full of meat, but he's fresh out of toilet paper. He is the captain. No poo-poo paper for you, my friend. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very, very excited to be featuring one of my favorite beers. We have featured this before, but there is great cause to bring it back. Ladies and gentlemen, trumpets, please. Five out of five bottle caps for Dortmunder Gold from my friends at the Great Lakes Brewing Company. This is an award-winning flagship lager that now, as of just this month, is available in a beautiful 12-ounce and 16-ounce cans. My, how we have come a long way, and today we are toasting with one of our favorites to some of our favorites. First up, cheers to Amber in Humble, Texas. Amber says the beer that she's buying, that she's providing to the beer fund, Captain, is for you because of your awesome takedown of Scott Peterson. The cheating turtle, yeah. Scott, the piece of shit. Peterson. And a big shout out to Christy in Melbourne, Australia. Next up, we have Jennifer in Salem, New Hampshire. And a big shout out to Lori in Dallas, Texas. Next up, we have Emily in Chicago. And last but certainly not least, a big cheers and thank you to Catherine in Orlando, Florida. Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, we thank you. And thanks for joining us. We know it's tough times. It's tough here in the garage. Keep your distance. Keep your distance, Colonel, or I'll sock you in the mouth. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around at a safe distance. Grab a Not chair. Not too close. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. 
The murders of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore, all just eight-year-olds, was the genesis of a triple homicide case that is typically known today as the West Memphis Three. However, the phrase West Memphis Three refers to the three teenagers convicted of killing the three little boys. On May 5, 1993, in a town west of Memphis, and appropriately named West Memphis, Arkansas, the three eight-year-old boys were reported missing. Initial police searches that night were limited. A more thorough search for the boys began the next morning at 8 a.m. After 1 p.m., the boys were found, but not to a good end. All were dead, found submerged in muddy creek water. Each boy had been stripped, and what has been commonly referred to as hogtie, each with shoelaces belonging to the boys. The drainage ditch contained two of the children's bikes and the clothing that the boys were wearing when last seen alive. The clothing was mostly turned inside out and twisted around sticks and stuck in the mud below the surface water. The Frank Peretti autopsies indicated that Christopher died from multiple injuries and possibly bled to death, and Stevie and Michael died from multiple injuries and drowning. They were murdered. The bodies and evidence concealed in the muddy waters, located in a small patch of woods known as Robin Hood Hills. Almost one month later, on June 3rd, at 2.44 in the afternoon, Detective Brian Ridge and Inspector Gary Gitchell got 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly to confess to being involved in the murders. A confession filled with inconsistencies, errors, and statements that go against some of the very basic known facts of this case. Jesse implicated 16-year-old Jason Baldwin and 18-year-old Damian Eccles as the assailants, rapists, and murderers of the three boys. The next morning, at a press conference announcing the arrest of the three teenagers, Inspector Gitchell was asked by a reporter, on a scale of 1 to 10, how solid do you feel your case is? Gitchell smiled and replied, 11. Legendary FBI profiler John Douglas later called this moment that golden nugget of law enforcement theater. In 1994, the three teens were convicted of the murders. David Burnett was the presiding judge. Damian Eccles was sentenced to death. Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life imprisonment. And in a separate trial, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. was sentenced to life in prison, plus two 20-year sentences. The HBO documentary, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, documented the case and the two trials. The now-famous film, which was followed by parts two and three, inspired justice advocates to unite and take action. An army was formed. Men and women, some of them celebrities, some of them from far away, all united for one common cause, to free the West Memphis Three. But if the West Memphis Three were innocent, 
then who committed the murders? Many, after watching the documentaries, grew suspicious regarding two of the parents, Christopher's adoptive father, John Mark Byers, and Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs. Both looked guilty for different reasons. Following a successful decision regarding newly produced DNA evidence, the West Memphis Three negotiated a plea bargain with prosecutors. In August of 2011, they entered Alfred Pleas, which allowed them to assert their innocence while acknowledging that the prosecutors had enough evidence to convict them. After having served 18 years and 78 days in prison, Judge David Laser accepted the pleas and sentenced the three to time served, and they were released. In a packed courtroom, Judge Laser spoke from the bench, quote, I am aware of the controversy that's existed. I'm aware of the involvement of the people in this case. I don't think it will make the pain go away to the victim families. I don't think it will take away a minute of the 18 years that these three young men served in the Arkansas Department of Corrections. What I just described is tragedy on all sides. And I commend the people in the case that have assisted toward the end of seeing the justices served to the best that we can do. It took nearly 20 years to right just some of the many wrongs in this case. But somewhere along the way of this long journey that took the valiant efforts of so many, something was lost and almost forgotten. The three little boys that were killed and lost their lives that day. The families of these three will never get them back. So this is not the best we can do because there's still time to get justice for Stevie, Christopher, and Michael, the forgotten West Memphis Three. Bob, how much did Paradise Lost 1, 2, and 3 play a part into your look into the case? Was it any type of inspiration for selecting this case? Uh, take us into to the Bob Ruff world a little bit on why you chose the West Memphis 3. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Paradise Lost, the entire trilogy, did play a big role in why I selected the case for Truth and Justice, but in a weird kind of way. Um you know, I, I, I study wrongful conviction cases because that's what I do for a living, right? So it's um, – I, I always go into these big famous ones and study them just to look for, you know, patterns and things to look for because we get we get hundreds of cases every month submitted to us to look at. And so I, I like to see, you know, what – you know, is there a jailhouse snitch involved? You know, there's is there not much physical evidence? Is there, you know, a potential wrongful or a false, false confession? There's a lot of little patterns that happen. So – I was just watching the documentaries just to get an idea of what the case was about and what inspired me actually to to cover the case on truth and justice was actually the fact that after I watched the series 
and I was trying to talk to to Mike, my producer and, and co-host about it, I couldn't remember the names of the victims. And 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 it bugged me a lot. And I really started to think about it and I started to look, you know, to do a little more Googling and things, and I just found that all of the media attention always focused around the West Memphis three, you know, Damian, Jason, and Jesse. And and our show, we try to be very victim centric, you know, and, and based on the victims, not only, you know, to, to try to give them a voice, but at the same time, that is, you know, critical to any real investigation should always start with a, a very thorough study of victimology to help develop a profile. And it just seemed like that was never done in this case. And certainly in the media, you know, while those documentaries were amazing and so was West of Memphis and and they accomplished an, a, an amazing goal of freeing the West Memphis three that never would have happened without them. They, I didn't feel like there was enough justice given to the victims. And that's why we, you know, we named our, our season five on the podcast and the TV series, the forgotten West Memphis three, because they seem to have gotten lost in a lot of the shuffle. What do you think you learn by studying these three victims? Well, the biggest thing that I learned by studying them is that my perception and the perception of, I'll say casual observers of the case, because there are certainly people that have been digging into like documents for, for decades now, but, but the, the general consensus always seemed to be that there were three boys who were just out playing, having a great afternoon. And then they ended up kind of stumbling into however they were killed. Uh, you know, and of course back in the, you know, in the nineties, they with the satanic panic, they assumed they stumbled into a satanic ritual killing, but then, you know, then later it became they stumbled into something else, or they look at like the the Bojangles man, or you know maybe it was some you know some transient trucker or somebody. Uh, but what I found when I studied the victimology, I was shocked. And you know, we spent I think three full hour episodes going through the hundred and forty page door to door notes in the case from the the canvassing after the bodies were found. And what I found when we start to piece all of those sightings together is that. The boys actually weren't together most of the day. First of all, you know, you had Stevie and Michael were together for a minute or for a little while, and then Christopher was alone, and then maybe Christopher and Michael and Stevie was gone. There's definitely a big gap in time when Stevie was was missing in action, when I which is when I believe he actually returned to his house for a short time. Uh, and, you know, and then they they only became got together right before they went into the woods, and then and then of course the revelation we find in the notes that one of Chris's friends reported that that uh, Chris straight told him that you know he was upset because his daddy whipped him and that he was running away. And so the the big I, I think the the thing that I learned most was that these boys didn't stumble into anything. They were running away from something and that dramatically changes the course of the investigation. Now obviously you are covering this case many many years after the fact, but when the initial uh, documentary was planned to do the first Paradise Lost, and they received permission to film or record both of the trials that were to take place. The documentarians went in there with the idea that these three teenagers were guilty. Like that was a juicy enough story in itself. And then once right. they're viewing the the trials, they start hearing the evidence in and the uh, eyewitness testimony and so on and so forth. And they start going, well, there's something that's not right here. This this doesn't appear to be the actual case. And then, of course, Paradise Lost turns into almost this movement to try to free the West Memphis Three. 
when you went into this, and of course we understand it was years later, but did you go into it with, with the idea of, okay, these guys are completely innocent or maybe Mark Byers had something to do with this or Terry Hobbs, or, I mean, did you go into this with anything, uh, prior thought, uh, of what knowledge you had of the case or did you not really have an opinion of it at all until you started looking into it? Oh, I, I definitely had an opinion, but I tried to, I tried to approach it from a really unbiased perspective because now you, both of you guys, I I know um, uh, definitely C- Captain. I don't know Nick. Were you were you a big fan? It's not the right word, but were you really interested in the case for for years to come, or was that more just Captain's thing? Yeah, I mean, it's always been one of my uh, pet cases. I guess it's it's one that's so easy to get sucked into, um, and mm-hmm. actually, just knowing that we were going to talk today pulled me right back in. I mean, it's one of the most fascinating cases out there. Right. It really is. So when you watch and, and, and I guess I'll, I'll ask, I'll ask you and captain, cause I want to, I want to know if I'm alone in this after you watched, if, if you watch them in order, after you watch part two of the paradise law series, who did you think was probably the most likely suspect? So that's, what's so interesting to me about paradise one and two is and I might've had a different opinion after watching the first one than maybe most. I watched that first one on HBO when I was a kid. I don't know how many times. And I always walked away from the first one going, you know what? I actually think these three teenagers did it. And then of course you watch paradise lost Two, And it looks like Mark Byers, he just time and time again, comes up looking guilty and more guilty and that he was the one that did it. And of course he's also this, large, loud, imposing man. Uh, he's also an authority figure to Chris and the other boys as well. He might know the area. I mean, there's just so many reasons why you can go, all right, well, maybe maybe he looks good for this. Right, and, and that was exactly my experience. I was wondering, Captain, did you, have, did you think the same after you watched part two? Well, after I watched part one, my first thought was that I feel Jason Baldwin is very transparent he's very believable in everything he's saying i i I believe a hundred percent that he had nothing to do with the crime then when you look at the confession with jesse miss kelly it it doesn't really line up with what the crime actually was but i could never get over the boogeyman comment from damian eccles oh yeah at at the end at the end of part one he's like well now i'm going to be known as like the boogeyman of west memphis and kids are going to say well maybe damien's under my bed or he's in the closet and that to me didn't seem like something a a innocent person would say oh for sure i mean really kind of spot on with what you think captain when i watched part one i thought maybe they're innocent um Definitely, I felt like Baldwin was innocent, but Damien I wasn't so sure about. And then after I watched part two, I was convinced that Mark Byers was the, was the murderer. I mean, 100%. I, I remember coming in, because I watched these late. It was just, uh, three years ago. I remember coming to the office and telling Mike, I was like, dude, holy shit. That, that this, this, guy, this guy killed him. The, the, the adopted father killed him. I mean, the, the, he had his teeth removed and blah, blah, you know, all the different things from there. I was convinced after part two, that it was, that it was Mark Byers. And that's, you know, that's kind of why I was, you know, when you asked if I had kind of an opinion, that swing 
from there, then of course after three, everybody thinks Terry Hobbs did it right. You know, that's that's kind of what they left you with, and then west of Memphis. And so for me, it was like, okay, I need to approach this from a completely unbiased perspective because Joe Berlinger just just fucked me up in three documentaries in a row. Because you know, I didn't watch them as they came out. I I watched all three of them back to back over the course of a week. And I watched, you know, based on the way they were produced, I went from thinking, oh, maybe they're guilty, Jason's probably innocent, to, oh, my God, it has to be Mark Byers, it's obvious, to part three was like, oh, no, it has to be Terry Hobbs, it's obvious. I was like, man, if, I, if I'm being swayed that much by the media, there's got to be a lot more to this case than the way they're presenting it. And so that that really led me into taking a completely unbiased approach and, and try to look at the investigation, which is what we did in season five when we covered truth in uh, the West Memphis three is to go all the way back to ground zero and just basically start a brand new investigation and see where it leads us. Well, I became a big fan of yours when you were covering cereal and I really liked the approach that you took there where you, you had a thought process and then you kind of try to prove yourself wrong. And I always, mm-hmm. I always like taking that approach, but, to me, West Memphis three is very similar to the Adnan Syed case where people look at the case and we are presented from these documentaries. We're presented all these cast of characters and people always see, like you said, are the teenage boys guilty or is it one of this, the stepfathers and everybody seems to have strong opinions of the characters that are cast for us. It, it seems like not too many people look outside that cast of characters. And it, and it seems like there's no new cast of characters in West Memphis three in the last 20 years. Right. Well, when you see the, uh, I know we're recording this before you see the series um, and you're airing it after. Um, but, but hopefully you'll, you, you won't have that opinion after this weekend because we have, you know, I, I hate to, you know, it, it, you're, you're right in the term cast of characters. I, I don't, you know, it makes it seem like it's a story. But one of the things I wanted to do was get away from the the sensational, you know, the cameras are always on Damien, right? And, the, you know, through Paradise Lost, it's Damien and John Mark Byers are our key characters. And it's because they're the most interesting, right? When you're watching it, you know, you, you know Damien is saying things like, well, I'm going to be the boogeyman under their bed and. Mark Byers is blowing up fucking pumpkins and and you know lighting bonfires at the at the discovery site, uh, but there's there's a lot more important characters I think that that you've never seen on on TV before. You've never seen it in the documentaries. You've never seen it anywhere. You know we have you know I don't know how you want. Do you want me to uh, mention? Do you want me to spoil some of what's coming up since they're going to hear it after or no? Well, how about we just since since it's going that route, how about we just dive into some of the details of the case and get your opinion on some of those okay. question marks and if it comes up, it comes up. If it doesn't, we'll force you into it here at the end. Um Sure. I'd hate to spoil it too early in our discussion uh because we got a lot of questions, a lot of things on our mind. It's rare for us we we think we know the case very well we covered it on true crime garage a long time ago um we it's way too big to cover it in in just a few episodes we tried in three but all we really thought that we achieved was we pointed out a timeline that came from 
from very credible sources and from police reports and, and eyewitness statements and so on and so forth that seem to indicate that it would have been very difficult, almost impossible on the timeline for John Mark Byers to have committed the crime, uh, especially by himself. We, we found a timeline that seemed to be that he was with somebody else and, and a, a whole different batch of people along the way, pretty much most of that evening and night. So um, I think the first thing, and this is really good for people that don't know the case very well, um, but but we're excited to get to talk to you because we feel you know this case really well, and that's why we want to get your opinions on these things. But for the people that don't know the case well, one thing I think the public may have trouble grasping, but they do need to understand as it's very important to how things played out the way they did. So I think if you could kind of talk to this a little bit, but we need to have an understanding of the level of poverty here in regards to the three boys that were arrested for the murders and in regards to the lifestyle of the three young victims, because the, the three that were arrested, they were extremely poor unfortunately. And the three victims were a little more middle-class. Um, could you talk and expand on that a bit? Yeah. The, what's interesting really is that a little more middle-class, I guess is a good way to put it, but the, the entire, you know, captain used the term cast of characters earlier. And if you look at it like that, the entire cast of characters here, they're all, you know, at the poverty line or below. The, including the victims' families, you know. So you have definitely the the three convicted. You know, they're they're living in very uh, low low rent trailer parks. You know, and and I've been out to these places. They haven't changed much since then. Um, definitely on the lower income scale. Uh, but but even the three the three victims. You know, you had you know the 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 buyers. You know, everybody was working. They had jobs and they were getting by. But these people definitely weren't thriving, and you had an interesting situation in just about every family. You know, you had you know we we had on our show we had Dawn Moore, who's Michael Moore's sister, who had never been interviewed before, and she was on the podcast during season five, and she gave us a whole new look into the uh, the, the household of the Moors, right? So the, their issue there seemed like it was alcoholism. She said, you know, both her mom and dad were alcoholics. It was an abusive situation, and so that wasn't the you know the the, the picture I had when I was studying victimology of what that household looks like. You know, you go across the street to the buyer's household, and you know again they're getting by, but they're they, they struggle a little bit financially. And you have uh, you you have some drug addiction both on um, Chris Byers' mother's part and his adoptive father, and then you go down to the the uh, Stevie Branch's household, the Hobbs household. You know, yet did Pam and Pam and Terry were both working. They seemed on the surface to be the most stable, but then we find out later that there's uh, possibly or allegedly some abuse that's going on there, and then also maybe some some drug use down there as well. So you you had nobody was in nobody was in good shape, so to speak, as far as in, in their household. Either they're struggling financially, they're struggling struggling with substance substance abuse, or they're struggling with physical abuse in in all of these different communities. But but most but definitely. The three that were convicted, uh, Damian, Jason, and Jesse, they they were throwaways for sure. And when I say that, I mean that they were, as you said, they they were extremely poor, much more so than the three victims. 
And once they were targeted by police, whether they actually believed they did it or if they were in fact targeted, that's up for speculation. But once they were targeted, there was there was nobody there to to fight for them. They didn't have any money. They didn't have lawyers. They just you know they were they were throwaways. There were people that I think the powers that be in, in particularly the West Memphis Police Department thought you know. We can lock these people up, close this case, everybody's going to be happy, and no one really cares what happened to these three kids. Well, and back to one of the things you were saying before, that when you're looking at the victimology, like you said, it changes from here's these three boys hanging out and they stumble upon something. As you were saying, you were getting into the idea that they're running from something. Uh, what evidence did you find could you find evidence to back that up? Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a big part of it is the fact that we, we find some weird anomalies throughout the sightings of them throughout the day where they're not together, they disappear. And then when you, when you, we study, so let's look at it, Stevie branch in particularly, Stevie was probably the most well-behaved of the three based on what we see from, you know, school reports, you know, we had, sounds like, you know, what we would call today, Chris Byers and Michael Moore both suffered from, from ADHD, which I can relate to. I have a nine-year-old that has the same issue, um, tend to be a little more mischievous, but, you know, Stevie was a rule follower and he pretty much stayed out of trouble. And he was told that he needed to be home by, you know, before 30, 445. Um, and, and so you had to believe that he's going to do his best to make that happen. And then the sightings seem to indicate that that did happen. You know, they disappeared. And then you have there's some medical evidence that Stevie has partially digested green vegetable like food in his stomach. Well, that that can only occur for about an hour, hour and a half before it moves past that stage in the stomach, which means somewhere along the lines he went and ate some vegetables, which would be a good indication that he he did go home. But then he left again. So then so then why is he he leaving? Now we don't know, but it it seems like, and then if you take Jamie Clark Ballard's statement, which you know I don't necessarily think is entirely credible, but she she reports that she sees Terry yelling at him to to get back down there, and and just the fact that Stevie leaves again after dinner, and then what we learn later in his victimology study that we have there there has been reported abuse from uh, his stepdad Terry Hobbs, and that's come from some family members, but also uh, in, in people that I've interviewed outside of the family uh, have, have have told us the same thing. That you know they, that they were always kind of afraid for Stevie because of some beatings that he would take from Terry. So so there's some indications with Stevie. Christopher is easier because we he literally went to the kid's name is Bobby Posey's house in the door to door notes, and I've spoken with Bobby Posey. We hear from him in the TV series, you know, and and, and he he goes to tell Bobby that his daddy had just whipped him and that he's running away. So there's there's no we don't have to speculate about if Chris Byers was running away because. He told told his friends that he was running away. We have other witnesses that we, that we hear from in the TV series that say that they saw them with sleeping bags heading towards the woods. Uh, and 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 Michael Moore was always kind of the leader of the group. There's not so much with him as far as direct evidence, other than some things his sister told us about you know the the situation in the household and and some potential abuse that could have been happening in the house, household. Again, that's a, according to her. I, I, that's not verifiable. So I would say alleged abuse that happens in the household. So all that together and then with the sightings that put them in different places at different times and then kind of coming together and then going to a place where where they know they're not supposed to be and the fact that Stevie would go there when he really knows he's supposed to be at home at that point, it, to me, is a, it, are, those are all great indicators 
that they were running away from something. They weren't they weren't just in that that scary woods across the pipe just to play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. 
Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And one of the boys, one of the victims, was it Michael Moore that was known to be afraid of those woods? Uh, Chris Byers. Chris Byers. Yeah, yeah, he was terrified of the woods, according to his, uh, to Mark Byers and to his brother, who we also hear from in the TV series. So it, what you're saying is it's not just one of the victims that was, quote unquote, running away, but possibly all three of them or friends trying to help their friend out oh your dad whooped you you can't take this anymore i'll help you out i'll i'll run away with you yeah you know this is kind of somewhat speculation on my part but my theory is that it's kind of a stand by me type of deal you know where the you were you know the kids are kind of rising up against the you know the grown-ups and taking matters into their own hands i think that you know again this is my theory is that chris was fed up and running away i think that something I I think that Stevie, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I think Stevie did go home and eat, and I think that he left and he was scared, and I think that Michael more than likely was the one that said, hey, I because we have, we have note in the door-to-door notes, Michael actually told a little girl that lived up near the pipe bridge that he's going to go over to the other side of the bridge to the woods behind Mayflower to his secret hideout. So I think I think Michael becomes the kind of the savior, the leader that says, you know, these, the, the other two are, are, they want to run away and get away from their parents. And, and Michael says, well, here I can, I know a spot. Let me lead the way and takes him over there. And John Mark Byers, he, he admits that he hit Chris that day, that afternoon, um, that he, he disciplined him. Right. Yeah. And then we have, hold on. I'm kind of, I'm kind of trying to, uh, digest all this as we, as we go through this here. So that's that's what I find very interesting, at least about the the Robin Hood Hills portion of it. Like, do you believe that the boys were killed at Robin Hood Hills? I mean, from the autopsy, it appears that two of the boys drowned. So, of course, two of them 
likely died there, but um, this is a pretty brutal attack. Do you think that from the evidence that we see that you've reviewed anyway, did this all take place in Robin Hood Hills? Uh, 100%. I, I don't think there's any... There's a million theories out there, uh, but after the thorough studying we've done of the case and the, the new team of experts we brought in for the TV series, it seems, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Rebecca Shu, that was our new uh, forensic pathologist that came in and looked at the autopsy, you know, her, her determination was that that all three boys died of drowning, um, that, that you know, there, there were some other injuries, a couple of head injuries, but basically all of the brutality that we see on the boys was all postmortem animal activity that this was a, this was not as, as complicated as a crime as we think. But the, the, another big misconception is for people that, and you know, I, I, in one of our episodes, I just mentioned, it's funny that my, my perception of those woods and where the boys' bodies were found mostly came from the, the, the movie adaptation of Marl Leverett's book, the devil's not when we see the, I'm sure you guys have probably seen that, right? Yeah. 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 It's, you know, you know, at the beginning when it shows them riding their bikes and they kind of, they go around the barrier and go into the woods and it shows them going through this remote forest back to this Creek in the middle of this huge forest. Well, that's where I thought this thing occurred, the, the crime occurred. But the reality of it is this was a tiny little patch of woods about the size of a football field. You can literally, I've done it. I've stood there and done it. Stand in the backyard of a house on the other side of the bayou and throw a rock to the place where the boys' bodies were found. I mean, th- this crime occurred right in the middle of. There's a operating truck wash to the west. There's a there's a major interstate to the north. To the south is the Mayfair Apartments, and then there's a, a, a row of uh, of houses with backyards about right up to the bayou. So the idea that that this could have occurred anywhere besides there is is really, in my opinion, preposterous because that means. I mean, this is where the, the search efforts are focused, right? Not necessarily across the pipe, but in the Robin Hood woods just south of the bayou, south of the pipe. Some people were in the woods north of the pipe where the bodies were actually found. So the idea that if someone killed these boys or captured them somewhere else and they need to either A, hide the bodies or go, you know, take them somewhere else to finally kill them, that they would just, that the, the place they would choose is. This tiny little patch of woods where the only way you can get to it is either to park on the highway and walk in, to park at the truck wash and walk in, or walk across the pipe bridge in front of the Mayfair apartments carrying these bodies to conceal them right in the heart of the search efforts is 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 bananas. There's just no way that would have happened. I think the only reason the boys' bodies were concealed where they were found is because that's where the crime occurred. And once it happened, I think that the individual, and I do think it was a single individual, once the boys were dead, they knew I've got to get I've got to hide these bodies and I need to create distance. I've got to I've got to I've got to make sure nobody finds these bodies at least long enough for me to get out of here and then appear to be doing something else. That's the only reason I think the bodies were concealed where they were is because there was no other choice. No one's going to choose that spot. It's a terrible it, it couldn't be a worse place to choose to dispose of a body when that's where everybody's looking for those boys, especially considering a mile down the road is the Mississippi river. And there's a million places you could drop those bodies and they'd never be seen again. So you were saying, and I, and I hope I got this correct, but you were talking about that. There's evidence that Stevie ate something before the crime occurred. Yeah. So in the autopsy, 
there is uh, a notation that says the other. Um, so, so the boys from their parents reported that none of them had eaten since their meal in school, their lunch, you know, 11, 12 o'clock in the afternoon or 12 o'clock. Well, so Christopher and Michael's stomach contents are empty, which is what you would expect. It takes, you know, there's a, there's a range of time, but for, you know, active eight-year-old boys with healthy metabolisms, the average is like an hour and a half to two hours. It takes for food to move, you know, to become digested and move out of the stomach or lumen as it's, as it's noted in the autopsy into the intestines. So Stevie, they, when they, when they open up his stomach, there's, there's quite a bit of what they call partially digested green vegetables in his stomach, which means, so he, you know, I believe that our window of when the boys were killed is between 6.30 and 7.30 PM, which would mean, so on the front end of that 6.30, if you go back hour and a half, two hours, that means that no later than, no earlier than 4.30, Stevie had to have eaten some vegetables and it could have been as, as late as, as 5.30, six o'clock even that he ate some vegetables. Do you think his family members are just misremembering or do you think it's more nefarious on on stating he he never ate anything i don't think it's nefarious on saying he never ate anything but the but the issue is so he he leaves at 3 30 right with with michael moore Mm -hmm. um is when michael comes down they get their bikes and go and so the the issue is even if pam hobbs is or pam hicks now is incorrect she says he didn't eat any snacks he didn't eat anything after school Let's say she's wrong, and let's say he did. He decided to eat some broccoli as a snack after school. That still, because it's 3.30 is the time he leaves, if he never returns home again, by 5.30, that's, that food's gone from his stomach. So even if she's wrong about that, it still wouldn't be partially digested in his stomach. You know what I mean? So, so at some point, he had to return. So I, I believe... I, I'll say this that I'm very, very confident in, in stating. I, I 100% believe that Stevie Branch, contrary to what's been stated by his stepfather at the time, Terry Hobbs, I believe absolutely that he did at some point after 5 o'clock return home and eat. And then he left again. Now, I don't, I do not know if. Terry was there and knows that he did that. So, I, so I'm not saying that Terry's lying in the fact that he said that he never returned home and ate. I don't know that. But what I do know, or I feel very confident in saying, is that Stevie did, in fact, return home and eat at some point and then leave again. And in fairness to the victims' families, it's my understanding that they weren't properly interviewed. From my understanding, actually, it may appear even in 1993, a couple of them were not sat down and you know they didn't participate in a thorough interview oh that's 100 percent correct and that's that's another part of why i decided to take the case because i feel like if we go back to the beginning and do this thing right that maybe the answer's been there all along if we do a proper investigation and that's why we took it on the podcast and the tv series but as i mentioned you know that that starts with a proper investigation starts with victimology and then you start with the people closest to the victims and you work your way out in concentric circles that was never done in this case. So Mark Byers was interviewed multiple times, gave recorded interviews, but that was because he went to the police. He He's the one that, in, that initiated that. Pam Hobbs was spoken to a couple times. Uh, you know, you have, you, have, you have cursory conversations with, with Dana Moore and Melissa Byers. Uh, Todd Moore, 
was never interviewed by police. And Terry Hobbs was never interviewed by police at all. Not not like a little bit at all, which which is which is baffling that they would. And it's because they jumped to an, an, a, a, a conclusion. They jumped to an assumption when they when they saw the boys come out and they saw how mutilated their bodies were, which we now know was due to animal activity. But that back then they didn't know. And they decided this was that satanic ritual killing they knew was coming. Damien Eccles is is the kid that that would do something like this. And they got such tunnel vision that they never did the basic, basic steps of a proper investigation, including not just not interviewing the family, but in the door-to-door canvassing, they never even went door-to-door in Stevie Branch's neighborhood at all. Not his neighbors, no one around there. We know now, uh, Pat, we know now, uh, Captain had asked earlier about uh, uh, evidence indicating that, that they are actually running from something. You know, we know now that, that Stevie was seen by a woman named Betty Johnson on 16th Street riding his bike south that afternoon alone. That's one of the reasons we know that he went home. It, well, the only reason we know that wasn't because of the West Memphis Police Department. It was because of a newspaper reporter that started knocking on doors in that area asking people if they had seen the boys. And she said, yeah, I saw Stevie – by himself on his bike riding south on 16th Street that afternoon. The police had no idea that happened because they never asked anybody in the area. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but there's I've seen where there were sightings of, you know, one boy, two boys, mm-hmm. three boys on their bikes and possibly even four boys on their bikes. And a lot of people think that fourth boy could have been uh Vicky Hutchinson's son. Right, I, which I, I don't believe that, by the way. But did you see any reports of, of four boys together? Yeah, there, there, there were a few reports with four boys together. As a matter of fact, in our timeline that we put together, based on all those door-to-door notes, I, I show that I called a mystery boy, but they're, you know, one of the big sightings was when Narlene Hollingsworth sees the boy and sees, you know, the, she says she sees three boys on bikes. And so people think, oh, it's the West Memphis. It's the three boys, except for Chris didn't have a bike, especially not at that time in the afternoon. He wasn't on a bike. So that third boy is actually a fourth boy, and she describes him as being heavy set with dark hair. Well, that doesn't describe either of the, any of the three victims. were all thin. So, so that sighting, along with a few others, is who you know we deemed mystery boy, and you actually hear from you know we figured out who that was and actually interviewed him on the the TV series who the mystery boy was. Um, and then there's another, you know, other sightings where there's four boys going into the woods right before they're killed. So there's another potential, uh, fourth boy, but I don't think that it's, I mean, well, for example, for starters, as I said, we, we know who that fourth boy was now. Um, but I've never believed it was, it was, um, Aaron Hutchison because the, 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 the evidence now it's been a little while. You may know more about it than me now, cause it's been a couple of years since I've studied it, but it seemed to be pretty clear that. Aaron Hutchison went home that day after school. He wasn't in the, and he didn't live in that neighborhood. He lived out in the trailer park. So he wasn't even around that afternoon. Right. And he gives dozens of different stories as to what he says he witnessed or saw when he supposedly saw the kids being killed. Right. Which is, it's, it's awful. What, what the police did to that poor boy, you know, what they put him through. And I mean, he, he names different suspects in each one of the stories too. The, the, the suspects don't even remain the same. Um, and then he, he says certain things took place on the victims or to the victims that we know just by the, the autopsies did not, 
did not occur at right. all. Regarding the timeline that you're piecing together, one thing that's always stood out is that Pam Hobbs, uh, you said now Pam, now Pam Hicks, her and Terry Hobbs's timeline for that night never really seemed to match up 100%. We, it's my understanding that Pam Hobbs worked that evening and that Terry drove her to her place of employment and then picked her up at the end of her shift right. that evening. With your, with your movement of Stevie Branch, do we have him leaving their house if he fact it did return to the Hobbs household? Do we have him leaving before Pam goes off to work, before Terry has to drive her to work? No, I, I don't think there's any question that he hadn't returned yet uh, before Pam went to work. I mean, that was is pretty obvious from you know from Pam's statements herself that you know she was upset because Stevie wasn't there, that Terry was upset when he got home because Stevie wasn't home when he was supposed to be. Uh, they left, and then she first finds out something had happened when Terry picks her up from work. I don't see any you – know, I'll say this. I believe her 100% that that's what happened. There, there's no reason for her to to lie about that. And and sadly, we all saw Pam's reaction when she found out what happened to Stevie. You know, it was, you know, it was, it was on you know, the news. It was on the Paradise Law series. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't think Stevie I, – I think that was the issue. I think that – Personally, this and again, I'm 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 giving you a theory here, but I believe that, Ter- that Terry and Pam left to take Pam to work, and Stevie probably ended up coming home shortly thereafter. You know, kind of missed him, and and then the question is, did Terry ever come home then after he dropped Pam off and and have some interaction or communication with Stevie, or did Stevie leave again before Terry got back? Now, when you watch these documentaries. And when you study the case, uh, which, and I'll I'll keep going with our theme of characters, which character were you most interested in and, and what did you, what do you think you learned by talking to them as a suspect or as a, like a personality? Well, not as, not as a suspect, but just, just anybody, uh, as far as the documentaries go. I mean, like if I was, you know, I rewatched a paradise lost one, two, and three recently. And I'd go, if I, if I could talk to anybody, I'd like to talk to, uh, Damien. I'd like to talk to Terry Hobbs. I'd like to talk to Mark Byers. Those are the first three individuals I'd, I'd want to interview. Right. Yeah. And I've interviewed all, well, I haven't interviewed Terry, but, um, I don't know if I can, I can, if I can point one out, but I guess I can walk through a few of those like you mentioned. So, um, Damien, uh, I really like Damien. You know, I, when I went to go meet him at first and interview him, I was, I, I shockingly, I was, or, or stupidly, I guess, I was surprised to find out that he's a pretty normal guy, you know, because he's, you know, his, his, his character so that we've seen on TV and, and kind of his character we see on his social media and stuff like that. You know, he's into this ceremonial magic stuff, which seems very mystic and, and, and very artsy. But, you know, I've sat around talking about football with Damien. Every, anytime I'm in New York, I usually try to catch up with him and Lori and we'll go out for pizza. And, you know, last time we were there, we went, you know, we, we went we went to a pizza place, Damien's favorite place. We had pizza. We hung out for a couple of hours. And then he, he took me to a place called Insomnia Cookies because he swear they had the best cookies in the world and they were the best cookies in the world. Uh, and so I guess my, what, was, what was interesting to find out with him is that he's, 
he's a Damien's a normal guy. Like he's he he he's interested in something that a lot of people don't necessarily relate with, which is you know his uh, I don't know what even call it a faith or religion, but his that ceremonial magic that he's that he's into. But you know, regardless whether you can relate with that or not, he's he's a very personal, very normal guy. Doesn't like talking about the case. Just likes just chatting about life. And I I enjoy Damien's company when I'm when I'm around him. Um, Jason Baldwin kind of surprised me the other way. He seemed like very a very much a vanilla kind of character. But then when I when I went down and, and actually met with him and and we we went out to lunch and then interviewed in person. He's he's full of fire. Actually, we just I don't know if you listened to it. Uh, either one of you guys did, but we just aired two part, uh, uh, two episodes of an interview I did with Jason back in 2018 that nobody had heard before, and and he's he's got fire in his eyes that I didn't know was there. Um, he seems he seems extremely interested in finding out who actually did this. Very much of, so of of the three. Where to me it feels like Damien is more involved with his causes. Uh, I think he's involved with the, um, the innocent people being on death row, or I don't know the name of it offhand, but um, he seems to be very driven toward that where Baldwin seems fully vested, uh, invested in finding out who did this clearing his name. And he's one of those people that, I mean, the interview is great, but you know, the captain and I have always kind of thought this. If, Jason and Damien would have been tried separately and Jason would have been tried first. We find it very difficult that that they would have found him guilty. A lot of that based off of his character and his personality. And of course that there just was no evidence, but um, to hear your interviews with him really takes his character, as you said, to the extreme because he does seem very vanilla on the surface, but when he starts talking about the case or talking about things that were going on in West Memphis at the time that they were charged with the crimes, he's one, he's fascinating. And two, he's very dialed into what he was doing. And I found his very detailed alibi to be incredibly one interesting and incredibly believable. Yeah, I agree on all, on all counts. I agree. And especially the fact that if he wasn't tried with Damien, I think he for sure would have been acquitted. You know, he was he was uh, he was collateral damage, really. Well, and I think that's one thing that gets lost in the shuffle. There is that we we have Jesse Miss Kelly who gives this this bad confession. He's offered a bit of a reduced sentence because they want him to testify against Baldwin and Eccles at trial. One simply just to introduce the confession to that trial. He says, "Look, I'm not going to testify against them, basically because it's not true." And then Baldwin gets the opportunity to testify against Eccles, and he turns it down as well, where that shows something to the character of these still very young men, these teenagers at the time. You know, there's a lot of meta that you see in the documentaries when that part, when the trial's happening in Paradise Lost 1, and Baldwin's reaction to when uh, when when his attorney i think it was paul ford asked him after damien had testified on camera he asked jason so do you think that he's guilty and if you watch that scene that scene right there is what convinced me that jason baldwin has no clue what actually happened because you watched you could see it in his eyes that he was thinking 
And then I think his response was, you know, I, they sure made him seem like he did. And it was like, holy shit, he really doesn't know. That kid does not know who killed those boys. Yeah, he does not know. And and he's thinking it through because you see his, it's almost his reaction. You can read his mind and it's like, he wasn't with Damon that, that evening. He wasn't with Eccles that right. evening. So he doesn't, he's, he's kind of clueless as to, he's not asked, did you and Eccles do this together? He's just asked, did Damien Eccles do this? And he's going, well, they sure made him look guilty. You almost see that he is about to say, well, I don't know. And I think he yeah. was smart enough to go, well, they see, they sure made him look guilty because that I don't know statement would have just been a an odd one for for the argument against uh, Damien anyway. Yeah, and it, it just, to me, it was like, I could see, you know, for me, I, I would see in his mind him thinking, Jesus Christ, did he do it? Like, like maybe he did. I don't know. I wasn't with him. You know, maybe he did do it. I don't know. They made him seem like he did. But, you know, again, like for me, what, I, you know, what I'm looking at is not necessarily what that means for Damien, but what does it mean for Jason? And it was like, obviously he didn't have anything to do with it with it, which again, is just one more thing that even if that was the case, it, it, if it was just that Jason was innocent, it just, again, tears the state's case down their entire theory down because it was supposed to be them together. And the confession had all of them together. Well, and how did his how did Baldwin's alibi fall apart? I don't, you know because he, do, doesn't he claim to he he went with with a different friend that's that's not really known to most of the people that have taken a, a quick look at the case. He went with a different friend to uh, cut his uncle's lawn, and then I think I and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm going off of memory here, but I believe that he. He and the friend went and did something afterward, and Baldwin is saying, "Hey, I remember this date because I sold him a, a cassette tape um, mm-hmm. that day." And that, you know, as we discussed already, these kids are dirt poor. He remembers that day because he one he probably did a chore that may have earned him some money, and if he didn't get paid from the uncle, he had, he at the very least received some money for that cassette tape from his friend. Yeah, yeah, the 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 friend that was with him was uh, Ken Watkins, uh, and I th- I think the issue is that alibi was, and I'm working from memory too on this part of it, you know, because when I when I did the case and we, I looked at okay, if I take this investigation from the beginning and do it properly, where does it take us? Well, the problem with that is it never takes you anywhere near the direction of the West Memphis Three, so we had to kind of force that in to go like, okay, well, let's see how they got here and why, so. I, I've never really focused a whole lot on their trial since then, but if, if memory serves, it had to do with the fact that when they questioned Ken Watkins, because you know, because Jason says tells his lawyers that yeah, I, I was with Ken Watkins after the lawn mowing. Damien left with Dominie, and then Ken and I went to Walmart and we played video games. And then he said, yeah, you should. There was an Asian kid there too. You should ask him, whose whose name ended up being Don Nam. Uh, was the Asian kid that was there. And he's like, these guys can verify my alibi. But then, you know, months and months and months later, when when Watkins and Nam get interviewed uh, before trial, they, they, they don't confirm his alibi. They either don't remember it or they don't give the right information. I don't remember the details exactly about it, but – Basically, they didn't they didn't corroborate what what Jason had said, so I don't think they ever ended up testifying. Well, just to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, after I watched Paradise Lost One, I started thinking, 
well, is is it as simple as they had Damien on a list and that's it? And they just went with this and this kid uh, had long black hair, listened to heavy metal, and he's kind of a freak show. And we believe that this was done by a freak show. Or was there, is there a little bit more to it? Like you said, if you, if you investigate it properly, then you're going through the proper channels, but you're still going to have a juvenile officer come forward and say, look, out of all the people in the town that I think possibly could have done this, here, here's a kid's name on the list that you might want to look into. Yeah, but the, the problem with that is that, like, that's fucking crazy. I mean, you, you know what I mean? Imagine in your town there's a murder and the entire investigation is based on some dude's hunch. Like, oh, I know a guy that would do this. You know, it's crazy. No, but I, I, I still think there that's reason to look into an individual. And then when you hear statements that this individual also, which maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, you know, at a at a, a softball game saying that he, that he killed these two boys and that he was going to kill more or two, two more when uh, before he was done. Yeah, I, I think it's it's reasonable to believe that you should look into this individual. Yeah, I, I'll give you that. I think that you know, if someone's got this hunch, or, or at least when that information comes forward, like the softball information, sure you look at him. But then there's a there's a there's a big chicken and egg problem with Damien too, in the fact like say say, say that statement at the softball, whether it happened or not. Yeah, I, I I tend to think that maybe some version of it did happen, uh, but but it's because. I think it's because you know he was an, he was targeted. He was interviewed within hours of the boys being found. He was harassed. The police were asking all of his friends, all of his family. They were calling him in repeatedly to the point where this rebellious teenager is like, "Screw these guys," you know. And 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 so I, my opinion, I think Dame, you know Damien says he doesn't really remember that happening, and he says he certainly wouldn't have confessed to something he didn't do. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities if he was at a game or whatever there and. You know, somebody's like, dude, I heard that you did it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I did it. I killed them, and I'm going to kill some more, similar to his boogeyman comment. Um, but certainly once that you hear that, that you heard this guy confess to it, yeah, you interview him. But would he ever – would any of that have happened if they weren't offering rewards to a bunch of poor people and harassing Damien and spreading the word around town that it was Damien who did it? then would any of these statements have ever come out? I personally don't think they ever would have. I think if they took this case and they and they and they 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 waited until they had the proper medical evaluation and said, okay, these kids were were hit over the head, drowned and and buried there. Okay. So that, that's that every indication there is that this is someone with a known personal relationship to the boys. The FBI was offering to help with profiling. So let's go interview and they should have already done so. Let's interview every single parent, every brother, every neighbor, and let's start let's start piecing things together. And I think that if you, I, I'm dancing here, but if I think that if you did that, if you started at the center and worked your way out, very quickly the person or people whose alibis don't check out, that aren't where they said they were, that have unaccounted for time and behavior. Would would have become very apparent very quickly. We're in this mess we're in now, twenty seven years later, because that was never done. And if you do that, I think that you never end up even 
even if some juvenile probation officer is like, well, I think that Damien Eccles was a Satanist. Well, if you waited for the proper evidence, you know that there was nothing about this crime scene that indicated it was a sat- satanic ritual whatsoever. Well, and there was what's weird about that that statement of, oh, I heard Damien Eccles say this at a softball game or, or whatever. I think it was in Mara Leverett's book, The Devil's Not, where there's some some evidence to suggest that even at times maybe investigators were going around town with a photograph of Damien Eccles and they're asking individuals about the case if they know anything about the the murders and they're also showing this photograph that's almost implying that this man this boy is is in somehow connected to the murders themselves and you can almost see a situation where because he knows he's being looked at and he's being harassed during this whole time that, that he's overheard discussing that with somebody and, and they misconstrue it completely. And and you point out something that's very, very big here is the reward. The, all these people are poor and now we got this money sitting on a, on a, on a table up for grabs. If you have any information, tell us and let's put these, put these devil worshipers behind bars. And, and here's your, your, your pot of gold that that money was never officially paid out to anyone that we know of. Right. Yeah. No one knows where it went. They've, they've been able to keep that pretty, pretty tight lipped. Uh, well, yeah, I might've went to Vicki Hutchinson. Who knows? Um, question for you. You said something that I find very interesting. A lot of people that think that the West Memphis three are guilty of this crime a lot of people will cite that, well, it, this is a crime that couldn't have been done by one individual. And you, you stated earlier that you believe it was done by a single individual. W- what makes you believe that? There, there's, a, there's a lot of things that have to do with the, the profile of the crime scene. You know, we've worked with, with Jim Clemente doing crime scene reconstruction and, and studying the behavior exhibited here. Um, and, and my own analysis was the same. People think that one, you know, how would one person kill three boys, but that's that's part of why the profile indicates that this is someone not only with a known personal relationship, but also an authority figure to these eight-year-old boys, which is pretty much any adult, right? Uh, it, it's very easy to see, say, one boy gets punished, and which results in him being unconscious, and the other boy's freaking out. And for that that single figure to to yell, you know, you get your butts back here or come back or I'm going to do this or whatever. And and you could literally, you know, as a, as a I've said this before on the podcast, that, you know, as a, as a grown man myself, I could easily grab three eight-year-old boys by the, you know, by the naps of their neck, by the collars of their shirt, you know, one in one hand and two in the other and grab them and hold them underwater all three at the same time. You know, it's not, you know, I've wrestled around with my, with my boy and his, in, in his friends, you know, it's, it's, it, so it's, it's definitely not necessary for there to be three. The forensics and the crime scene seem to indicate that there was one, you know, that, that it's the same kind of patterns happening on all of them. People like to cite, well, this knot was tied differently than this knot, but they were all a series of half hitch knots, basically, you know, some of them were double, triple, whatever, but it's basically the same type of knot. The boys are all tied up in the same way. You just don't see that that happen with three different people, right? So, so the boys were tied up in a very unique way with ankles to, to wrists. So what you're stating is with the, the knots, 
the the knots were the same type of night knots. It's just sometimes there were multiple knots instead of just a single. Yeah, so a half hit a half edge knot is a basic like the first knot you tie in your shoes, you know, over under and pull it tight. Yeah. And you know a double knot and a triple knot and a quadruple knot. They're all they're all different variations of that knot. But what what's more important right. is to look at the very unique way of how the boys were tied. Right ankle to right wrist, left ankle to right wrist. That that was done, you know, no one would direct someone to tie them in that particular way because there's no utility in it, right? It doesn't stop someone from running. It doesn't it doesn't keep them from being able to untie themselves. It's not hog tying like like some would say. It's it's pretty clearly this was done post mortem or at least post you know when someone's unconscious. I think Michael Moore did show a little bit of bruising from one of the ligatures, which could mean he still had some amount of heartbeat left when that was put on, but the others show none. So, you know, if, if there's multiple people and you're directing them, you know, do you say, "Hey, when you tie them up, make sure you tie right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to right ankle." You, you wouldn't do that. You know, you're just gonna you're, you're trying to tie them up. In my opinion, the reason they were tied that way was to create a smaller package to keep them under the water. Uh, so that they didn't they didn't reveal themselves. I think it was probably a trial and error. I think they were probably put down. It didn't work, and then they took the clothes off and tied them up that way. Um, but that's kind of really getting into the weeds. But the the point is, in, in my opinion, looking at that that crime scene, the same person tied all three of those boys up. The same person uh, put all three boys into the water in the clothes. Everything is too uniform for there to have been multiple people there. And also, I mean, plain and simple. Two people can't keep a secret like this for that long. It's impossible. The only way a secret like this gets kept is if only one person knows what happened. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us in the garage. We know it's difficult times. Weird times, strange times, and we appreciate you. And we're going to keep going with the Flying Garage Ship. And if you want to listen to our coverage of the West Memphis 3, download the free Stitcher app. We have all of our shows on there. And you can go all the way back to July of 2016. Listen to episodes 40, 41, and 42. Those are the West Memphis 3 episodes. Also, we've talked about West Memphis 3 I don't know how many times on our other show off the record available on Stitcher premium, go to our website and you can click on off the record and get a free month of listening until tomorrow. Be good, be kind and don't litter. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 